morning. We're going to read the entire chapter. We'll read from verse 1 down through verse 9. We'll read those responsively. We'll read the even verses together with the exception of verse 9. When we get down to the end of the chapter, we will read verses 8 and 9 together. I'll begin in verse 1. The Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. Together, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I want to preach a very simple sermon this morning by this title, Our Excellent God. Let's brag on God for a few minutes this morning. Let's go, to get, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for so much for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, um, enjoyed the choir special this morning about singing hallelujah to your name. Lord, your name is worthy. You're worthy. And Lord, um, it's been great to gather here with brothers and sisters and, and praise your name through song. And Lord, now we turn to the sermon, the preaching of your word. And God, I pray our hearts will be open and tender to it as we, this morning for just a few moments, we, we brag on you, how excellent you are. Lord, we're reminded how beloved you are, uh, uh, God, by the, the world around us, by nature. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will be brought and our desire by the end of the service would be to worship you more than we already are. May we uh, have our hearts set to learning and gleaning from your word today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When I was a teenager, um, I spent my junior and senior year of high school at Rosedale Baptist Church uh, just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And I was given, um, about, ha- about halfway through my junior year, I was given my own bus route uh, there in a little town called Middle River. Middle River, Maryland's a, a small bedroom type community to Baltimore. And it's a mix of uh, both middle class folk and uh, there was definitely some Section A housing type set up there. And so uh, Angela and I, after we got married, we would live in Middle River for two years. But as a teenage boy, I had an apartment complex I'd go to regularly. Uh, I did a, uh, along with some other teenagers and adults, we did a backyard Bible club uh, there. Saw all kinds of children saved in this particular apartment complex. Angela and I, after we were married, we'd end up the second year of our marriage living in those apartments, but uh, my freshman year of Bible college, I came home and uh, looking to get back involved on my old bus route, now someone else was the captain, but wanted to jump on the bus route and just help, and so I was over, uh, I had a shirt and tie on, blue, uh, I believe it was a blue shirt on, short sleeve, and it's hot outside, I was wearing a tie and had some khakis on, and I'm standing out there by uh, uh, the, the playground, and I'm meeting some new kids I'd never met before, I'm 18, 19 years old, I'm giving them bus flyers, these half sheet of papers, and I'm, I'm inviting them to church, and I'm trying to sell them on riding the bus the next day, and uh, I 
been over there for a good few minutes, and uh, uh, down the road comes this motorcycle, a very loud, boisterous motorcycle. And I believe it was a Harley Davidson, if I remember right. But the guy uh, pulls into uh, the parking lot that was uh, uh, bordering there, that uh, that playground, and he gets off the motorcycle, and he's got a black leather vest on, he's got black leather pants on, he's got tattoos up his neck, he's got long hair as he takes his helmet off that comes uh, uh, falling down, just a rough-looking guy, and he he uh, gets off his motorcycle, he hangs his helmet there on the handlebar, and he comes over to the edge of the parking lot, and he says, Hey, you! And points right at me. He said, Come here! And um, I'm this scrawny little 18, 19-year-old boy. I've, I've put on some weight since then, amen? Ministry's been good to me. Um, my heart starts racing real fast. This big, strong, intimidating looking guy. I didn't show any intimidation on the outside. I just marched right at it. I said, I'm coming at you, big boy. Here I come. And uh, I was marching right at him. And I got about ten feet from him. And he pointed his finger out at me. He said, are you a preacher? And I said, well, yes, I am. I'm actually studying for the ministry. And uh, and I thought, you know, I, I thought maybe he was going to be one of these, um, uh, you know, uh, Jesus people on the motorcycle, that, that's not what I was getting myself into. And I approached him and he said, i got to ask you a question. He said, I saw the little uh, uh, Bible in your hand, I saw the tie around your neck, I figured you were religious. He said, i got to ask you a question. Why in the world do you believe that hooey? Why do you believe that phony, blowny, phony baloney religion? What has brought, got you so tied up into that that you're actually out trying to get other people to do it with you? He said, I don't believe in God. And I looked at him and I said, well, let me turn the question around on you, sir. Why don't you believe in God? He said, oh, I don't believe in that stuff. He said, that, that, that's just ridiculous. Religion's nothing more than an emotional crutch that people use to get by in life. And, and I don't need all that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And uh, I had just finished personal evangelism in college just a few weeks prior. And I learned a tactic in that class when witnessing to an atheist. And I thought, aha, this is a perfect place to employ this. I looked at him and I said, sir, I said, I know you're riding a motorcycle and I know you're a big tough guy. I said, but can we do something? Can we play pretend? And, and he looked at me and I said, let's pretend that there is a God. I said, I know you believe there is, but let's pretend there is a God. Let's pretend there's a heaven. Let's pretend there's a hell. Let's pretend this book in my hand is God's Word that He wrote as an instruction manual to mankind. And let's pretend that inside of this Bible, it tells us how we can rectify our relationship with God and we can get to heaven. I said, do you mind me taking just a few minutes and showing you what this pretend, what this pretend book says about how to get to a pretend God in His pretend heaven? And he looked at me and he said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but go ahead. Go ahead. I said, well, let me just make clear. I don't believe this is pretend, but I know you don't believe that. So I walked him right down the Romans road. 15, 20 minutes, man, I waxed eloquent. I explained to him the gospel. He was hanging on every word. The Holy Spirit was beginning to convict his heart. You could tell that he was really under deep, strong conviction. And I'm getting down to the end and I'm thinking, this, this guy is going to go from being an atheist to a Christian in about 20 minutes. This is phenomenal. And I got down to the end and I, I asked him, I said, if God is willing, I said, sir, let's set all the hypotheticals aside. I said, I believe that God is real, that heaven is sweet and hell is hot and the Bible is true and everything in it is true I said, sir, if you're willing right now to accept God exactly how He is 
Are you willing to let him accept? Are you willing to allow him to accept you as you are? Are you willing to ask him to come into your heart? And he shook himself and he said, "Well, I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. I don't believe in God. I just," he said, "That was a nice presentation, all, but I just don't believe in God." You ever been out sharing your faith and some words just stumbled out of your mouth and you don't even know where they came from? That ever happened to you? Maybe you're talking to someone and someone's asking for some spiritual advice and you get away from it and you go, wow, that, that was pretty good. I don't even know where that came from. I never even had that thought before. What I, again, I'm a 19 year old kid and, and I'm in way over my head with this guy. But I wasn't in over my head because I had the Holy Spirit of God speaking through me. And, and I think sometimes when you don't know what to say, that's really when you're in the best spot. Because God then can take over and your intellect doesn't get in the way. And before I even realized what I was saying, I had already said it. I looked right at him and I said, Sir, what happened to you? Why, why don't you believe in God? What happened in your life? And you would have thought his mom died when I said that. He broke down and sobbed at that question. Just wasn't the response I was expecting. He put his head down and he began to weep. And I had this grown man with a Harley to his left, leather all over him, long, unwashed hair, tattooed neck, and he's weeping. And I'm thinking to myself, they didn't tell me what to do in Bible college when this happens. And so I, I waited for him to kind of compose himself. And I said, why don't you tell me what happened to you? Because I knew I, at that point I knew I'd struck a nerve. He said, when I was um, in my early 20s, I didn't look anything like this. He said, I didn't have any tattoos. I, I didn't own a motorcycle. He said, I, I was just living a very normal life, going to a junior, I believe he said he was going to a junior college. He said... Um, I, I went to this grocery store, and in, in the checkout line, the, the young lady who was doing the checkout was an Asian-American young lady, very, very pretty, attractive young lady with just a beautiful smile. He said, uh, I began to flirt with her, and I, you know, uh, we, we kind of hit it off there a little bit. And I found myself going back to that grocery store more and more and more, and I found myself finding her checkout line and figuring out about what her schedule was. And, and, and the more we talked, the more I liked her, and I would ask her out after work, and she would always say to me, the only place I'm going to go with you is to my church. And he said, I didn't have any interest in God. I didn't grow up going to church except for maybe special occasions here and there. I, I had no interest in going to church. But I really liked this girl, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to church with her. He said, so I, I went to church with her, and it was a non-denominational church, and I sat in the pew uh, two, three Sundays, and, and the preacher would always get around to talking about basically what you just shared, about Jesus is the way to heaven, and you got to believe in Him, and you got to call on His name, and that He had died for my sins, He had risen from the dead. And, he, and every week at the end of His sermon, He'd give this invitation for people to come to the front and make a decision to, t- to trust Christ. He said, so, uh, he said, you know, I was living down in, in, in Alabama, it's the Bible Belt down there, Everyone around you is a Christian. He said, you know, I really wanted to please uh, my girlfriend here, uh, and I really wanted her to officially be my girlfriend. So I went forward one, and I could. He said I could sense she really wanted this. So he said I went forward one day, uh, one Sunday, and I sat down there on the front pew, and somebody walked me through something very similar to what you just showed me. He said, and I didn't mean it, but I bowed my head and I prayed the prayer that they led me through. And he said my girlfriend was elated. <laughs> 
She was so excited that I had done this. He said, I, I went through all the next steps that they led me through and I was going to church every week and, 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 and he said, to be honest with you, I was doing it to win her. I was not doing it because I believed in God. He said, uh, my goal was to, to, to go to church with her until we got married. And then it was just to drop out of church. He said, we got engaged. Shortly after we got engaged, she went to have a physical. And at that physical, they discovered late stage cancer in her. And he said, before we could say our wedding vows, she was dead. He looked at me and he said, now you're a preacher, I want you to tell me something. If there is a God, why would he take her life and let murderers and rapists and bad people walk the streets? Again, I'm 19. I can answer that question now fairly easy. But I didn't know the answer to this question. And again, I believe the Holy Spirit gave me the words to say there. I looked at him and I said, Sir, I don't know why. I mean, if any human being tries to tell you why, they don't really know why. I said, that's a very difficult question. I said, but it appears to me that it isn't that you hate God, or it isn't that you don't believe in God, it's that you hate God for taking her from you. I said, it appears to me that you have built a wall between you and God. And you are telling God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's why you're dressed the way you are. That's why you're acting the way you're acting. I said, sir, let me just share this with you. Until you tear that wall down, God's going to have no chance of telling you why he took her. I said, it may not be until you get to the other side of eternity. But you're not going to find out. You're not going to find out as long as you're living your life that way. You know, I really began to think about atheism. This guy's claimed that he was an atheist. And I began to think about all the other times I've met someone who's an atheist. And at the time, I scribbled down, I wrote down two reasons why I believed people were atheists. Since then, I have added a third reason. Here are the three reasons why I believe someone claims atheism. The first reason I wrote down, something tragic happened in their lives, and they believe that, uh, and they didn't, ha- they didn't understand how a loving God could allow that to happen to them. All of us know someone like this. Uh, something really tragic has happened in their life and they're going, if there is a God, why would He let this happen? And to that I would say this. God has given you and I a free will. We get to make our own decisions. That free will goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And that free will is what this made Adam and Eve distinct. It made them different than all the animals. They got to choose to do what was right while the animals didn't get to choose. The animals did what they did out of instinct. By the way, animals continue to do what they do based on instinct. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and because of that sin, disease has been brought into the world. And now anytime someone dies from a disease, it is the result indirectly of mankind being plagued by sin. You say, well, why am I plagued with a disease? Why is my loved one plagued with a disease? And I would tell you this, God is no respecter of persons. And neither is sin. Sin is not a respecter of persons. The, the sin bug bites us all differently. Some couples can't have babies. Some people die young. Other people suffer the sin bug in a different way. But it all bites us in some way. And it is never God's fault. Because God did not choose 
for mankind to sin. Mankind chose for mankind to sin. The other side of that free will is that God's not going to step in and stop somebody from hurting someone else. I'm not carrying a weapon on me today, but say I was. If I chose to reach down and pull a weapon off my hip and aim it at one of your heads and pull the trigger, God is not going to drop out of the sky and grab hold of my wrist and stop me. He's not going to do that. God gives mankind a free will and lets them make those choices, even if it's to the hurt of His creation. God cannot be blamed. God cannot be blamed when we use our free will to hurt someone else or when we're hurt by someone else's exercising of their free will. And people step back and say, God, if you're up there, then why did you let this happen? And God says, I didn't choose for mankind to sin. Mankind chose for mankind to sin. The second reason I wrote down as to why people become atheists or choose atheism, they are living such a sinful lifestyle that they do away with God so that they don't have to face Him someday. They do away with God so they don't have to face Him someday. The truth is, if, if God is my Creator, then God gets to judge me for the choices I make. And so, if I don't want God to judge me, then I must do away with Him as my Creator, logic would say. So there is no God. I can live however I want. I can talk however I want. I can act however I want. And and I, I don't have to answer to anybody at any point forward. And I'm here to say that one day, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2 tells us. You don't get, you don't get to say, I live, I'll live however I want because there is no God. My friend, there is a God who cares about you and He wants you to live your life in a way that pleases Him. Yesterday, Pastor Dave was giving the, uh, the, the, the challenge in the bus meeting, and he got talking about atheism uh, for a short time. And he made this comment, and I thought it was really good, and I think it fits well here, so I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit, then I'll use it here. He, he, made, he, he said, uh, anytime you meet an atheist, ask them this question, when did you convert atheism? Everybody has a date. It's an atheist. Nobody was born an atheist. We all believe in God. We have to choose not to believe in Him. The third reason I wrote down, and this was the one I wrote down years later, and I think this is becoming more and more common in our society as our society moves away from its biblical foundation. These are intellectual atheists. They've been educated in home and at school, uh, and this home and school has drilled into their heads that there is no God. They have atheist parents. They have an atheistic school system that tells them there is no God. Now let me say about our public school system, there are good, godly people that work inside our public school system. And I'm by no, I am by no means throwing them out. Okay, I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But let me say this when it comes to those that write uh, the educational material for our public school system, as it pertains to the science world, they are writing God right out of the textbooks. And they have been. They have been. Uh, millions and millions of years ago, there was an explosion in space, no larger uh, of, a, of a dot, no larger than the period at the end of the sentence. And from that explosion came everything. And we're teaching our children this. 
heard one creation scientist say that he'll go into a church and in that church he'll go into their junior church and he'll explain to them how the world was created by God and he'll get down to this whole elaborate explanation and he'll ask the children how old is the planet? And every time some kid shoots his hands up, it's millions of years old. Why are they saying that? Because it's been programmed into their heads. It's been programmed into their heads. We are trying to train our children to be atheists. I find it fascinating that as we have taken the Bible and prayer out of schools, in fact, I believe that, that the official date of that would have been in the late 1960s. You can go back and pull up a graph of this. But the year after they took Bible and prayer out of the public school, teen suicide skyrocketed. Teen pregnancies skyrocketed. Why? Because there's no moral compass. There's no moral compass. There's nothing to keep them grounded in truth. This country was built on Judeo-Christian principles. What's that mean? Judeo. uh, The law writer. Moses, the law writer. Moses was a hero uh, in this country and his writings were uh, uh, heroic books and books to be followed and revered and respected for centuries in this country. Uh, Christian, Christ being the center of Christianity. Moses and Christ were held high as the biblical heroes, or the moral heroes of our country. And now we have undermined Moses. We have underrided, uh, under, uh, uh, we, have, we have done away with Christ. And what has happened is now we have no moral heroes in America. We have no moral heroes in America. It is a moral, or rather an immoral, free-for-all. And I'm here today to say that as Christians, we need to reestablish Christ. Reestablish Jehovah God at the very center of this church, in the very center of our lives, the very center of our marriages, the very center of our parenting, uh, whether your children are young or old. We need to put Christ at the center of who we are as a church, as a people, and as a country. And this morning, out of Psalm chapter 8, I would like for us to look at five concepts about our excellent God. Let's jump right in and look at these five concepts as David explains them through the 8th Psalm here today. Uh, Concept number one is this. Note the word popularity. Popularity. Look back with me at Psalm chapter 8 and verse number 1. The Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. Can you read those next four words out loud together with me? Ready? In all the earth. Again, ready? In all the earth. How excellent is thy name in all the earth. Let's look at a few biblical examples this morning that talk about just how popular our God is within His own creation. Now, we'll be going expositorily through Psalm 8, so hold your place there. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. In in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, leading up to verse 39, what we find is that Jesus and His disciples have been uh, uh, doing uh, the work of God and and, and the disciples have been following Christ around as He's been healing people and they want to go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, so they climb in a boat. Jesus is exhausted. He goes and He lays down in a little room in the back on a bed and He's asleep and this huge storm, as you know about the Sea of Galilee, storms can come out of nowhere. They can come quick. It arises on Him and this is a tumultuous storm and the waves and uh, are beating up against the side of the boat and water's crashing in the boat and uh, the boat's beginning to fill up with water and even these experienced fishermen are beginning to become weary and scared about what's going to happen to them. Look at verse 39. The Bible says, And he, Jesus, arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? 
And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These, these fishermen, these disciples of Jesus, they're getting nervous. And they go in the back and they find Jesus and he's asleep. And they're thinking, how can he sleep through this storm? Uh, how many of you here can sleep through just about anything? Uh, a bomb could go off and you just keep on sleeping, right? Uh, that was what Jesus was. He must have been really tired. And, and one of the disciples comes and grabs Jesus by the shirt and shakes him and says, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Can't you see that we're about to die? Wake up and do something. And, and I, I always picture Jesus in this story. He, he kind of slowly rolls over and swings his feet over the edge of the bed and he, he puts his feet down in about ankle deep water and he stands up and he stretches and yawns, wipes the sleep out of his eyes as he's stumbling toward the front of the boat there and he gets right there to the front of the boat and he holds his hand out as a wave is coming right at his head. And he says, peace, be still. And that wave, from a rocky sea to a sea of glass. From cloudy, rainy, boisterous skies, the clouds part and you have the night sky. The disciples are standing there. At this point, they didn't really know who Jesus was. They just knew He was a great prophet. They didn't know He was the Messiah. And I've often wondered if this wasn't the time that it dawned on Peter, this isn't just any ordinary prophet. My friends, the waves and the sea and the wind and the sky know who their Creator is. Why? Because He is an excellent God. It's not just the waves and the wind. Turn with me over to the book of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. The waves and the wind, they know how popular their Creator is. He is popular to His creation. Look at Luke chapter 19 verse 37. The Bible says, And when He, Jesus, was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that he uh, that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Notice his response here. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Hey, if these disciples don't praise me, if they're silent right now, the rocks will begin to cry out and praise me in their place. If I want the rocks to praise me, Jesus said, the rocks will praise me. The rocks will praise me. How popular is our God? Oh, He may not be popular in our public school system. He may not be popular in our government. He may not be popular with the culture at large. But He's popular with His own creation. My friends, not only is Jesus popular with this creation, but Jesus is popular with His enemies. They praised Him too. Turn back over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. Here we find the story of Jesus as He's hanging on the cross. The Roman guards had been ordered by Pilate to beat Him with a, with a cat of nine tails. The centurion had been 
put over the execution of Jesus and they had led Him through the streets of Jerusalem down the Via Dolorosa and up Mount Calvary and they laid Him down there and these centurions, they drove the nails through His hands. Uh, they drove the nails through His ankles. They lifted that cross up. They drug the cross over to the hole. They watched as they He torturously had every joint come out of His body. They stripped the robe off of Him. It was the Roman guards who were mocking Him and casting lots for His garment below the cross. And at the end of His crucifixion, as the rock was rent and tore, and as all of the spectacular things that happened to that day, look at verse 39. And when the centurion, this would have been the man in charge of overseeing His execution, when the centurion which stood over against Him saw that He so cried out and gave up the ghost, He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Even the enemy of Christ that nailed Him to the tree had to admit, this man is God. Why? Why? Because our God is an excellent God. Our God is an excellent God. But that's not all. Turn over to Luke chapter 1 verse 44. Luke chapter 1 verse 44. Mary here has been visited by the angel and been told that the the babe Jesus has been placed in her womb. And here you have the babe Jesus now. And Mary leaves her her town there of Nazareth and goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is also expecting a baby. And that baby would be named John the Baptist who would be the forerunner for Christ. So Mary's at least three months along, maybe four months along here. And here comes Mary along. And, and, and look at verse 44 here. The Bible says, For lo, as soon as the voice of thy Mary's salutation sounded in mine, Elizabeth's ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. What happened when John the Baptist in the womb of, of, of Elizabeth sensed Jesus coming in? John the Baptist worshipped Jesus from the womb. Why? Because our God, Creator, Jesus, is an excellent God. He's an excellent God. This is something you can throw at an atheist, and it's a it's a curveball. It's something they really can't answer. You can travel to any corner of the globe, and you can go to any remote gathering. And you know what you're going to find? That they all have one thing in common. They're all worshiping something. All of them. Every last one of them. You know why? Now they're usually not worshiping God as we know Him from the Bible, but they are worshiping a God. You know why? Because it is built within our innate desire to worship a higher power. That's why. We want to worship a higher power. Why? Because we have a God who's created us. Do you know which book outsells every book every year? The Bible. There are more copies of the Bible sold every year than any other book ever. And it's not that the Bible has outsold every book over a grand scheme of things. No, every single year the Bible is the highest book sold. Every year. And it's been that way since the Bible's been in print. You say, well, well, why is that? Uh, because people want to know what their Creator is telling them. Why? Because God is a popular God. 
Again, Psalm 8, 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. In all the earth. So, uh, observation number one, we see popularity. Popularity. Aspect number one of our excellent God is popularity. Let me give you a, a, a second aspect here, and that would be proof. Look down at Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1 again with me. Psalm 8 and verse 1, the Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. Notice the second half of the verse here. Who has set Thy glory above the heavens? Who has set Thy glory above the heavens? Will you turn over a couple of pages with me to Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1? I love this verse here. It says there, the heavens declare, or the heavens shout, or the heavens scream, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth His His handiwork, or His artistry. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, <clears throat> excuse me, the firmament showeth His handiwork. All you gotta do if you wanna know if there's a God is go outside and look up. Look at the sky. Look at the trees. Look at the nature and the order of nature. Turn over with me to Psalm 14. should just be there. Maybe same page or one page to the left, depending on how your Bible is laid out. Psalm 14, verse 1. By the way, the verse we're about to read can be found word for word in Psalm 53, verse 1. This is in the Bible twice, the exact same way. God puts it there for emphasis sake. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You all know what April 1st is? Everyone knows April 1st is, right? It's National Atheist Day. Let that sink in for a minute. They call that, uh, was that uh, happy fools or you say, uh, what, do you, what is it you say to someone on April 1st? April fools, yeah. And so uh, according to Psalm 1 here, that's National Atheist Day. Listen, this whole nonsense, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call it exactly how I feel about it. This nonsense that everything came from some accident, explosion in space. Look, there are very smart people that believe that, but that is not a very smart thing to believe. Um, believing in evolution is like believing that you can put a bomb in the middle of a factory full of car parts, blow the bomb up, wait five million years, and a Ford Mustang is going to come rolling out. How is it any different? How is it any different at all? Believing in evolution is like uh, putting a bomb in a in in a in a airplane graveyard, blowing up the bomb and having a Boeing 757 sitting there, engines running, ready to go. I can remember many times going and sitting next to a large body of water at night. I've done this with the sound since I've moved here. I've done it with the Gulf of Mexico, I've done it with the Atlantic Ocean. Other lakes, some of the great lakes in Michigan. Just getting by myself and going out by the water and just sitting there and thinking and praying. How many of you enjoy praying and being alone by, by a large body of water? Am I alone with that? I see several hands here. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I enjoy doing that. I'll sit there and I'll look as far as I can out to my left. 
And I'll look as deep as I can. And I'll look as far as I can to my right and as deep as I can. And all I see is water. And then I try to imagine a hand big enough to come up underneath that and hold all that water. And I'll look up at the the sky with the stars. And I'll say to God, are you really that big? Are you big enough that you can hold all that water in the palm of your hand? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 12 says this. It says, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span. You know, if I, if I sit out by the sound and I look out at the water and I'm looking out as far as I see and I see nothing but water, do you realize that's just a drop of water in the grand scheme of all the water of the planet? And God holds all that water right there. I, I can take this bottle of water right here and I can, I can pour it in my hand. And I can hold a little bit, but you see it seeping through my fingers there. But that's not a whole lot of water. That's just a couple drips. God holds all the water of the world right there in His hand. Right there in His hand. The Bible says He meets out heaven with the span. You think about how big our galaxy is. He measures it between His thumb and His pinky. Measures it with His thumb and His pinky. You um, you look at a canvas, a, a painting canvas. You look at the Mona Lisa. No one walks through the art gallery at, at uh, wherever the, the Mona Lisa is held. I know where it is. It's just slipping my mind right now. But no one walks through the, that art gallery and looks at the Mona Lisa and goes, Huh, boy, I wonder if that was created by an accident. Nobody does that. Then why do we look up at the heavens and say, I wonder if that happened by an accident? You say, Pastor, can you prove that there is a Creator God? Yes, I can. You say, well, prove it. Walk outside and look up. And ask yourself if you think all of that order happened from disorder. Aspect number one of of, of the excellent God is popularity. Aspect number two is, is proof. Let me give you a third aspect here, and that would be the word power. Look down to verse number 2 of Psalm chapter 8 this morning. The Bible says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Now, that is a peculiar verse. Out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth of a nursing child or a suckling, hast thou ordained strength. You, you bring strength from a weak Baby that can do nothing for itself? You, you say that that's what you use to defeat your enemies? God does not need a valiant man to accomplish His will. He can use just a little baby to do that. Remember the story of little baby Moses? Remember the story of little baby Moses? He was born and his mother Jochebed didn't want to throw him in the river like she was commanded to do. And so she uh, risked her own life to, uh, to, to nurse him and take care of him and somehow keep him quiet. The day came where little baby Moses was just crying a little bit too loud and it was going to be given away that he was there. So she made a, a, a basket. She made a bassinet. Now in Spanish, the word for bassinet is the word moises. 
Moises. It's actually the name of Moses in Spanish. I love that. And the, the bassinet in Spanish is named after Moses as he was laid in a bassinet or a, or a little Moses and it went down the river there. And you know, God is intricately involved in the details of our life. He guided that basket down to a yearning young lady who was wanting a baby to take care of, and that basket floated down. Now, I'm getting ready to tell a joke here, okay? I told this joke in the 830 service, and everyone just stared at me. Don't do that, okay? Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm prepping you here. How many of you had a cup of coffee this morning? All right, no excuses then, okay? If you haven't had a cup of coffee, laugh anyway, all right? So this, this uh, basket's coming down, and it floats up to the greatest female financier in the Bible, Pharaoh's daughter. You say, Pastor... How was Pharaoh's daughter the greatest female financier in the Bible? Well, she went down to the bank and she drew out a little profit. I'm hearing as many groans as I am laughters. By the way, the greatest male financier is Noah. He kept his stock afloat while everyone else was under liquidation. Alright, I'm done. That's, That's all I got for today. Here comes baby Moses. And uh, Moses floats up in this bassinet and, and she picks it up and she says, Oh, he's crying. He's so cute. Daddy, can I keep him? Please, please, please. And the dad, uh, Pharaoh, probably made the comment, What can one Hebrew boy really do anyhow? Oh boy, what one Hebrew boy did. Moses would one day lead the Israelites out of bondage and into freedom. God doesn't need a valiant man to accomplish His will. He can use a little baby just fine. I think about little boy David up against the big, mighty, strong Goliath. Would you, how many of you would, you know, you ever look at a kid and go, you know, 18, 19 years old and say, you're just a baby. Some of you older people. He, you're just a baby. And you're thinking, I'm not a baby. I'm a grown man. No, no, no. You're, compared to me, you're just a baby. Well, compared to Goliath, David was a baby. David took that little sling and he slung that rock up there and old mighty Goliath came tumbling over. God doesn't need a valiant man to accomplish his will. He can use a baby just fine. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21 with me, if you will. We're going to look at a couple of passages in Matthew. If you come to White Oak Baptist Church, you've got to get good at turning pages. Because we like to use the Bible at our church. I hope that doesn't offend anybody here. It's not about some young kid, some, some baby's opinion up here. I'm a baby compared to some of you. It's not about my opinion. It's about the Word of God. We want God's Word to speak it. And we work very hard at White Oak Baptist Church not to be just Baptists, but to be Biblicists. We want the Bible to do the preaching. Look at Matthew chapter 21 and verse 15. The Bible says that when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children, the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And they, the Pharisees, were sore displeased. The chief priests were sore displeased. Here Jesus comes into town and they lay the palm branches in the road and they cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus gets off that donkey and He goes into the uh, into the temple there and He flips over the, the money changers' tables and He upsets the chief priests and the scribes. And as soon as He comes out from doing that, there is a chorus of children standing there. And they're crying as long as they can, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Highest! 
And these chief priests, they're just really upset. And they come out and say, hey, tell those kids to be quiet. And Jesus looks at them and says, have you not read in the Scriptures out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. He quotes to them Psalm 8.2. Quotes it to them. They're praising me because I don't need a valiant man Pharisee. I don't need a valiant man scribe, chief priest. All I need is a baby to accomplish my will. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 verse 3. Boy, a simple verse with great profound truth inside of it. Here Jesus is speaking. The Bible says, And said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. How does a person get saved? They've got to have faith. They've got to have childlike faith. Now, what differentiates a child's faith from an adult's faith? Children have not been taken advantage of by life. Children are innocent. Children are quick to believe. I could take, uh, I could take a child and I could set them right here on the platform, or even put them up here on the side of the pulpit, and I could stand here and I could say, jump! And if the child knows me, well, they're going to jump, and I'm going to catch them. Pastor Mike, if I put you up here and I tell you to jump, probably not going to happen, right? Do you think I'd catch you if you jumped? You'd squash me like a bug. You know why? Life has taught him better. Jesus says, if you want the most powerful gift of all, then you've got to humble yourself and have faith like a child. You know that more people will get saved between the ages of 4 and 18. In fact, 90% of people that get saved get saved between the ages of 4 and 18. Another 5% or 6% get saved between the ages of 19 and 25. After 25, very few people get saved. Why? Because they've been taken advantage of by life and they're skeptical. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a Bible and I've gone through passage after passage after passage and they intellectually understand it, but their faith is not strong enough to be exercised inside of it. The Bible says here, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength. What's that mean? You've got to go back and have the faith of a baby if you want to get saved. You want to be saved. Some of you here today, you may not be saved. You may maybe don't know for sure you're on your way to heaven. My friend, as much as I can tell you, as loving as I can tell you, but as firm as I can tell you, your good works, if that's what you're trusting in, even just a little bit, they are going to send you to hell. You say, well, then what do I do? You humble your heart and you have the faith of a child and you believe that Jesus Christ lived, He died on the cross for you, He rose again, and that He was and is God. God does not need a valiant man to accomplish His will. He can use a baby just fine to do that. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says this, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. You're here today and you say, But Pastor, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not a very smart person. Can I tell you something? You're a perfect candidate. You say, but Pastor, I, 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 I just, I don't really have my act together. Good. God wants to use you. 
Now, God uses people who are intellectual. God uses people who have their act together. But I'll just tell you this from my studies of the Bible and just kind of getting the heartbeat of God. I think God probably gets a little bit more joy out of using people that don't have their act together. Because He gets a little bit more credit along the way. And even if someone who has their act together is trying to give the credit to God, oftentimes people will unintentionally give it to them anyway. God wants all the credit. God does not... How powerful is God? God is so powerful that He doesn't need some four-star general to accomplish His will. He just needs a baby to get it done. Because it's His power that goes through to get it done. Looking at these various aspects of an excellent God today. Say them out loud with me if you will. Number one was popularity. Number two, proof. Number three, power. Number four, notice precision. Precision. Look back with me at Psalm chapter 8 and verse number 5. Psalm chapter 8, verse number 5. We see there, we're going to read down through verse 9. Notice the order here. The precision in the way God made things. For thou hast made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth, through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth. Now, let me just say today that our society is trying to brainwash us, and I think in some, some level it's succeeding, that we are to put the earth above or at least on the same level as mankind. My friend, God created planet earth for human beings to use and for it to be for their pleasure. What does that mean? That means that animals are not on the same level as humans. You say, but I love my little pooches. You can love your dog. That's great. But your dog's not a human being. You say, but, but, but I, I watch Bambi and I don't like deer hunters. Well, stay away from Ernie Simon, amen? Listen. Disney is great at making animals look like they have human characteristics. They don't! They don't! You say, Pastor, are you, are you one of those mean, evil people? And I would say to you, are you for PETA? You know what PETA stands for, right? People eating tasty animals. Amen. Amen. I like eating. Now let me just say this about hunting, and I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious here. Let me say this about hunting. Hunting that is done so that you can use that animal to better the human being, I'm for that kind of hunting. Hunting that is done just for the sheer pleasure of killing an animal, I'm not for that kind of hunting. We were given an order by God. What is the order? God, the angels, mankind, the planet. God, the angels, mankind, the planet. Now, let me, let me step away from those comments. Let me draw out another uh, point here. Do you see how that God has structure? You see how God has order? There's God, the angels, mankind, and planet. Do you know that God is for you living your life with order and structure? You know why some of you are so miserable? 
The truth is there is no structure to your life. You get up whenever you want, you go wherever you want, you do whatever you want, and you do it whenever you want to. And Monday varies from Tuesday from Wednesday, and this Monday varies from the next Monday, and varies from the previous Monday. You have no order to your life. And God is not pleased by that. God is not pleased by that. If you're taking notes, can I encourage you to write down two sentences? If you don't get anything else from the message today, this can revolutionize your life. Here it is. God is the author of order. Let me give you another sentence. Satan is the author of disorder. If your life's out of order, who are you pleasing? You're not pleasing God. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but rather the author of peace. A little further down in verse 40, the Bible says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And that includes your life. God created the planet with precision. And He wants you to live your life with order. You say, but pastor, I'm retired. And this is a great thing to hit in this service, because we've got a lot of retired folks in this service. Amen? God still wants you to have an order to your life. Get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time. Do things that please the Lord. I know it's a little less structured, but still find some structure there. Number five, aspect number five of our excellent God is the word purpose. Purpose. I saved my favorite part of the chapter for the last point. Look down with me at verse number three. And I want you not only to see the words on the page, but try to feel the emotion behind the pen of the psalmist. And before we read it, imagine David sitting under a tree with a harp in his hand, looking up at a sky filled with uh, stars that's clear, and sheep out grazing in front of him, and the moon nice and full, and David in a heart of worship before God. Now with that as the backdrop, let's read verse 3 down through verse 6. Notice what David says here. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. David's sitting underneath this tree. He's he's playing his harp. And again, this is somewhat speculation on my part, but, but no doubt he's in a place of worship. He's looking up. He's seeing the handiwork of an almighty, powerful God. And he's saying, God, you are limitless. God, you have no limitations. You created all this with just the, 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 your voice and, and you're all powerful. And who am I? What is man? What is mankind that thou art mindful of him? God, I am in amazement that you even know who I am. An amazement that you care for me. You know what David's doing here in Psalm 8? He's worshiping God. He's worshiping God. Worship isn't raising your hands over your head and, 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 and dancing along to some phony, baloney Christian song. Now, That is, the raising of holy hands is in the Bible. I'm not taking a shot at that. Let me make that very clear. 
By the way, we have someone come to our church and they raise their hand during the song service. As long as their heart is pure in it, you have no right to judge them. They can raise their hand all they want and worship to the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with you doing that either. But there is a brand of praise and worship service that's just emotional, emotion-driven and it isn't true worship. That should come from a life of worship that leads to celebratory worship. David was living a life of worship. David, in the privacy of his moment, looked up at God and said, You are everything. I'm just a little pee on nobody. God exists from eternity that direction to eternity that direction. David said, I'm just a little blip on the radar. You could get rid of me anytime you want. But not only do you know who I am, you care about me. You care about me. David said, I have been created for a purpose. David, why were you created? You were created to worship God. You say, Pastor, why was I created? You weren't created to work that job that you work. You were created to worship God. Worship God. Let me meld the last two points together if I could. Every one of us here agree that we need to take time daily to worship God. How many of you here believe, whether you're doing it or not, how many of you understand and even desire even if it's a little bit, how many of you understand that you need to take time every day to worship God? Would you raise your hand if you understand that? Okay? Put your hands down. The question comes, then, why don't we? In a room this size, we have some Christians who, their worship of God involves coming to church, and that's it. You really don't read your Bible and pray much. You know you should, but you don't. You find it difficult to do that. Other ones of you here, and I would say this is probably the majority of you. Others of you here, you're you're hit or miss in your Bible reading. You'll go three or four days and read it, then you'll miss a week. And three or four days and read it, and you'll miss a week. Two days this week, three days the next week, four days the next week. And and just depending on how busy you are, depends on how much Bible reading you do. It's not uncommon for someone like that to go a month and not read their Bible and then feel terrible about it, and then go a month and read their Bible. You're sporadic, you're hit or miss. And then there are those of you in here, you have a, your walk with God is more entrenched. It's, it's more consistent. Let me ask you a question today. Have you ever attended a church service, and hopefully not here, okay? Maybe on vacation or before you attended here. Have you ever attended a church service that just didn't have any structure or order to it? How many of you have ever been to a church like that? Let's have sister such and such come on up and sing us a special. You ready, sister such and such? You, oh, that's okay. Just come up here and do the best you can. And then it's 25 minutes of, of testimonies. And then it's 15 minutes of that. And then a preacher preaches for a few minutes. And then it's a couple more songs. Preacher preaches a little bit longer. There's no structure. That's frustrating. That's frustrating. You know, God becomes frustrated with you, Christian, the same way when you live your life with no structure. And because of that lack of structure, there's no walk with Him. If you don't plan on purpose to worship God, you're not going to worship God. You're not. It's got to be put on your calendar. 
and you got to do it. We must worship God. We must plan to do so. We must organize our schedules in a way that allows us room to worship our Creator. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning.